Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Our family has an inordinate number of mental health professionals who are perpetually encouraging our grandsons to make good choices. A few months ago, one of the boys informed his mother that people who make bad choices are not good for the kingdom. Even at four, he recognized the importance of making good choices. I suspect that that was more of a confession than an admonition. In our lesson from Deuteronomy, Moses is delivering the same message to the Israelites. Moses is speaking the words which Yahweh commanded him. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Next, there's a conditional proposition. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you have entered to possess. Then there's a huge but. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. There are the conditions explicitly stated, but memory is generative. When there is a contract that is sealed, there's a way to notarize it to ensure that the document is original and authentic. So next, the Lord provides his own witnesses. And Moses says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days so that you may live in the land that the Lord seeks to give to you and your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After all those many years of waiting, they're soon to receive their inheritance, the real estate that their ancestors were promised. 
It's about to be turned over to them. But there are conditions that are set forth to ensure that they're able to hold on to the land. The conditions are pretty simple, actually. They are to love God and to be obedient to His commandments. If they do that, they'll come out on the positive side of the ledger with life and a plethora of blessings. If they choose not to do that and to be disobedient by following after other gods, they will receive curses that will culminate in their individual and collective deaths. The psalmist prays about these blessings in Psalm 1. When he says, Happy are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seats of the scornful. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law every Sunday morning. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. No, that's not quite right. They meditate on his law day and night. Day and night. I, I use the American version of that. I'm sorry. I got confused there. Uh, the, my quote was based on the popular practice, not on the prescription. The psalmist observes that those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night are like trees that are planted by a stream of water bearing fruit in due season with leaves that do not wither and everything they do prospers and bears fruit. But the pathway of the wicked follow a different course. They're like shaft that the wind blows hither and yon. The wicked shall not be able to hold their heads upright in the face of judgment, nor will the sinner in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows that way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. My four-year-old grandson had it absolutely correct. Those who make bad choices are not good for the kingdom. The epistle lesson is found in Philemon, which, by the way, is between 2 Thessalonians and Hebrews. <laughs> the shortest of the Pauline epistles. St. Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of his runaway slave, Onesimus, who apparently had shown up at St. Paul's front door. Paul found him to be a tremendous asset and had considered just allowing him to stay on with Paul. But St. Paul did not want to do that without Philemon's consent. So he's writing this letter to Philemon in his own handwriting to encourage Philemon to do the right thing by Onesimus, to make the right choices. St. Paul is offering to reimburse Philemon for any expenses incurred as a consequence of Onesimus's elopement. St. Paul tells Philemon, if you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus even as you would welcome me. 
he closes this portion of the epistle with an expression of confidence that he knows Philemon will do the right thing. Which brings us to the gospel lesson. <coughs> Not the most favorite gospel lesson for most of us. Luke tells us that Jesus' ministry had been attracting huge crowds of people who think they want to be disciples, that they want to follow this way of life that Jesus is teaching. But the question is, do they have what it takes to be disciples? And that's a real important question. What are the requirements? In Deuteronomy, the requirements were to love God, to be obedient to his commandments, and to avoid being seduced by other gods. By the way, those requirements have not changed. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says that a disciple must be willing to sacrifice everything. Jesus even encourages inquirers to count the cost. And he draws on two analogies. If you're going to build a building, it's pretty important that you have the resources to finish it. If you're a political leader and you're going to wage war on an adversary, it's important that you have the resources to be able to prevail. Failing to prevail could be extremely detrimental to your future. Jesus says that a disciple must be willing to give up everything. Jesus even encourages inquirers to, as I said, count the cost. The question on Jesus' lips to every person who seeks to be a disciple is, are you willing to give it all up? When I was a seminary student in Chicago, um, Chicago, by the way, is the second largest theological center in the world. There was a story that was going around about a Presbyterian seminary student who was appearing before his presbytery to be examined and vetted for purposes of ordination. And people in the Reformed tradition are asked the question, would you be willing to be eternally damned for the honor and glory of God? 
with this young man's pathway toward ordination had become quite arduous as people were in their vetting of him, um, really giving him a hard time. And so by the end of his interview, when they asked him the question, would you be eternally, would you be willing to be eternally damned for the honor and glory of God? His response was, not only that, I would be willing for the whole presbytery to be eternally damned for the honor and glory of God. As many of you know, this parish is a training parish for people who are educated in non-Anglican seminaries um, to become acquainted with the Anglican way of life, the liturgy, the practices, the theology. Um, and as I reflect on the years that I've done that as a mentor and a teacher, I think that I have been weakest in preparing people for the sacrifices that holy orders entails. People who are ordained to holy orders, whether at the level of the diaconate, the presbyteriate, or the priesthood, or the episcopacy, that needs to be first and foremost in your life, without exception. I had a conversation with my brother this week, and a dear friend of my mother's passed away last week. And they, the family called the pastor to come and visit with her in the hospital as she was dying. And his response was, I can't do that. I'm getting ready to go out of town with my wife. Later, they were planning the funeral after she had passed, and the family asked if the funeral could be on Saturday. And he said, no, I can't do Saturday. I have family time planned. This lesson from Luke has Jesus telling people that if you're going to be fit for the kingdom, then you need to put the needs of the kingdom ahead of family needs. In evangelical circles, we hear a lot about family values. This is Jesus's family value. You'll recall a story from the Gospels where, where um, Jesus is um, in, within a structure teaching a group of people, and his mother and siblings um, come up um, and um, they want to talk with him. And Jesus's question is, who are my mother and my brothers? And in Jesus's reality, which hopefully is also our reality, our family is right here. Not biology, not based on biology, but based on ecclesiology. 
People who make bad choices are not good for the kingdom. So I think we need to do a better job of teaching people what the expectations of Christianity are. The Protestant Reformation did a very poor job of that. And led people to believe that there are certain things that are true that Scripture in no way supports. And so we need to take a second look at that and see what the demands are. In America, we're pretty committed to our money. And to the things that we own or that we think we own. If you pick up a book that belongs to me and you open up the front cover, you will see the phrase ad usus, above my name, which means for the use of. I don't think in terms of owning things. I think in terms of being a steward of things that are entrusted to me by God to do that which is right and to make good choices where they're concerned. I think that's the, I think that's the true Christian value. This week I got an email from Bishop with some interesting data, and here it is. 17% of Christians say they tithe 3 to 5% of their income. 17%. Three out of four non-churchgoers make non-profitable donations. Non-profit donations. 37% of self-identified Christians give nothing to their local church. 37%. 8% of families making less than $20,000 a year tithe. 1% of families making more than $75,000 a year tithe. The average adult donates about $17 a week to their local church. Now, Bishop doesn't see a whole lot of encouraging news in those data. Imagine that. He says these are stats that are calling out for strong teaching and preaching about the core teaching of our Lord Jesus and the apostles regarding generosity. So he's saying priests and deacons need to be doing more to teach people about giving and about generosity and about benevolence. But wait, there's more bleeding here. Only 17% in the U.S. attend church weekly. 17%. 25% in the U.S. attend church three out of eight Sundays. 94% of church are being outpaced by community. That means stuff going on in the community is taking up more of our attention than what we do here. There's a deep mistrust in religion institutions. Imagine that. When you have 
priests out molesting children, that's not going to attract a lot of confidence in what it is that you're doing as a church. Only 28% of adults between the ages of 23 and 37 attend church. Are you ready for this one? One in seven pastors is under the age of 40. You're, you might qualify in this country as a minority. 65% of in churches, 65% of churches are in decline. Go into any church in America and look around. Most of the heads will have gray hair. In 2010, there was a 16.6% drop in church attendance. They're anticipating that by 2020, there, there will be an additional 15.4% decline. And by 2015, at the present traje trajectory, no, by 2050, not 2015, by 2050, at the present trajectory, there'll be an 11.7% decline in church attendance. Churches that are not endowed will have a hard time keeping their doors open. Now get a load of this. I was listening to a broadcast this week. I think it was on talk radio. And the commentator had a friend in London who told him that when she walks around the city of London, nearly 50% of the women are dressed in burkas. As far as I know, there is no religion on God's green earth that is less friendly to women than Islam. And yet, Western women are flocking to Islam in record numbers. What's up with that? I think the answer is that they're looking for a structure that postmodern Christianity refuses to put on the table. Bishop is intimating that the problem is that people don't know scriptural expectations for giving. I question that. At the risk of questioning his grace, I'm dubious about that. I don't think those figures are due to ignorance. I think those figures are a function of American values. Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. Where a person's heart is, there their treasure is also. Most Americans that purport to be Christian do not begin to meet the criteria for Christian discipleship. They are what I call nominal Christians, Christians in name only. And in the face of adversity, they'll fold up like a $2 suitcase. <laughs> in my opinion, what we're seeing today is a consequence of the Protestant Reformation. How so? The Reformers were looking for the least that one had to do in order to have salvation. Now, they were responding to a particular 
set of events that were happening in the Roman church with the sale of indulgences. I get that. But in their view, the least common denominator was to believe, which has come to mean cognitive assent. Do you believe in Jesus as Lord? If you do, you're as sure for heaven as if you're already there. Oh, yeah? Luther said, sin boldly, only believe and rejoice. The reformers quoted St. Augustine as saying, love God and do as you please. Which is not what Augustine said. <laughs> what Augustine said is, love God and what you do will please him. And, and, if you do, and if you really do love God, what you do will please him. Your behavior will follow your commitment. The effect has been that we have made Christianity way too easy and have led people to believe things that just aren't true. Either because we're looking for numbers, but what Jesus is saying in this lesson is that before you make a decision to be a disciple, you need to count the cost. And you need to make the determination whether or not you're going to be willing to do what the demands are that Christianity requires. So what's the bottom line? In my opinion, the bottom line is this. Most people that think they're Christians really aren't. Our lessons today prescribe some specific directives. Jesus is telling inquirers to count the cost of discipleship. Do you know when the church flourished most? It was when people were martyred for the faith. When people were called upon to make the supreme sacrifice for their faith, that's when the church flourished the most. Christianity grew by leaps and bounds. These lessons are hard. They're hard for me. You, you've lived with this for about 25 minutes. I lived with this all week. <laughs> so everything I say to you, I say by way of confession. But the four-year-old is right. Out of the mouths of babes. People who make bad choices are not good for the kingdom. So we need to ask ourselves... <laughs> That all-important question, what kind of choices are we making?